Welcome to the first edition of the Populous Papers, where rogues and scoundrels gather unlimited motivation and vitality as we beseech the invisible chiefs to help guide you on a journey of subterranean enchantment where the elixir vitae awaits your indulgence. What's up? Welcome to episode three of the Populous Papers. I am your host, Colin Kramer. We have a lot of new listeners joining us this time, and old listeners, hey, it's been a while, so let's just bring everyone up to speed. A quick recap here. In episode one, cypherpunk and techno activist Steve Phillips walked us through a privacy-enhancing workshop, and he now has a Patreon page, patreon.com slash stevephillips, I believe, and uh, you should go on there. You should sign up to be a beta tester of his new Cryptag app. Uh, it's a note-taking app, and uh, it's great. Also, he recommended people use Tor because it is a search engine, kind of like uh, Google or Firefox, only it cannot track you, even if it wanted to. This is what Chelsea Manning used to leak information. So even if they wanted to, they couldn't track you on there, right? They have no way of keeping your search history. Also, DuckDuckGo is a great search engine alternative to Google because also it does not keep any kind of record of the things you search for, no tracking history whatsoever. Isn't it kind of creepy sometimes when you search for something and then you see it advertised somewhere on Facebook, you know, they're watching you. Well, let's put an end to that by using Tor, T-O-R, and DuckDuckGo. Also, Signal is an excellent text messaging app. It's fully encrypted, so it is absolutely nothing like regular text messages, which can be um, surveilled by private investigators, government agencies, and corporations. So Signal, Tor, and DuckDuckGo. In episode two, we exposed the likelihood of this Cal exit phenomena, as well as the presidency of Donald Trump, as being Russian intelligence operations designed to undermine the credibility of the United States and to destabilize our region. So it's definitely something to think about. Hey, uh, this might be season 20 of The Americans, and we're living it. All right, can't wait uh, for that show to come back, by the way. Anyway, I'm going to keep my rant short because we have a very special guest lined up for you today. I originally was going to interview him on the Conspiracy Theories episode and talk about what conspiracies are uh, fascinating and perhaps legit, which ones are wacky and maybe were meant to undermine the credibility of other ones or to just kind of throw you off. So a lot to think about there. However, I found out that uh, this guest had written a screenplay when he was only 15 years old called Fusion, all about cold fusion. So I decided to put him on my clean energy show, which is this. Um, one thing though, I, I want to put out there divestment. Okay. This is a really big deal, especially now that standing rock and the Dakota access pipeline are back on the table. Now I've been with a credit union for almost two decades now, and I love it. Pull your money out of the big blood banks. These private for-profit multinational blood sucking corporations. They're a bunch of fucking bastards. 
and divest that money in local credit unions. Credit unions are non-profit. There's also some state banks out there. Well, only one to my knowledge. I believe North Dakota has their own bank. And um, we should be going in that direction in California soon. But great news. The city of Santa Monica voted um, five to zero, their city council did, on pulling out of Wells Fargo because Wells Fargo is one of the primary financiers of the Dakota Access Pipeline. So pull your money out of Wells Fargo, write them a letter, call them and tell them they fucked up and explain why you are going to go with a nonprofit credit union. Now, um, credit unions are great. I have found that, you know, they're just much more friendly. It's a lot easier um, to kind of get in touch with their higher ups if you have any problems or concerns. Even little things like if you run out of checks, just show up to your local credit union and they'll probably give you a dozen or so free money orders. It's great. Overdraft fees are much more reasonable. Um, and what I did for credit cards, because that's a whole nother can of worms, I actually applied for a new credit card through my credit union. They gave me a really generous credit line. I was quite surprised, actually. And uh, I'm doing balance transfers from my Chase accounts, all those bastards. Uh, and I'm going to transfer that over to the credit union because it is a much lower rate. And I would trust them with my money more. Now, think about this. If something like 2008 were to happen again, the meltdown uh, and the banks collapse, well, it's a lot safer to have your money in something locally owned and something nonprofit rather than in some ruthless casino that is giving their CEOs, um, I believe it's a trillion dollars a year, what some of these banking CEOs are taking home. Just for handling finances. What the fuck? They're not even producing anything. Doesn't that make you sick? So once we get a state bank, we can, I mean, wouldn't it be nice if we could reinvest some of those profits back into the Commonwealth? High-speed rail, single-payer healthcare, state-of-the-art schools. Could be fun. So think about it and um, start moving your money. Um, and I really hope that the rest of L.A. County follows Santa Monica's suit because um, this is great, great news. Oh, and Seattle also. Um, they have a socialist mayor and they completely divested from Wells Fargo. Because think about it, wherever the city, um, cities have to deposit funds somewhere. And I encourage everyone to get on the phone, um, contact you know your city officials and representatives, find out where they're keeping your money. It is your money too, after all. And tell them that it was unacceptable if it's with anyone involved with the Dakota Access Financing. That is Chase... Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and Citigroup uh, might be a couple others. But yeah, credit unions are the way to go. I really shouldn't have to sell anyone on the benefits of renewables. Obviously, fossil fuels are going to run out. Uh, it's a dying, nearly obsolete industry, and it's dirty. Seven million people die every year from fossil fuel-related issues. Uh, we're talking about asthma. We're talking about cancer. It's just completely unacceptable. And as far as the pipeline goes, there has not even been an environmental impact review. 
and the pipeline is guaranteed to leak. Uh, that means it's going to make its way into our drinking water. This is a really bad idea, especially when we have all kinds of other options. We've talked about pea power, cold fusion, uh, and we're going to talk a whole lot more with our guests in just a few. So let's get right to it. Also, uh, I usually save credits for the very end of the show, but uh, our musical director, Chris Cooley, and my show director, Myra Rodriguez, you're the best. Couldn't do this show without you two. So thank you for everything you've done and are continuing to do. So a quick little break here. And when we return, it's me, Michael Ryan, The Renewable Revolution, and you. Can't wait. to have on the line film director and founder of Archetype Pictures, Michael Ryan. His latest film, Interpreters, which he directed, shot, and edited, is part of a chronology called The Sea and Earth Chronicles, and is about a shadow corporation that sends unusual beings into a small town to murder the people for their memories using technology. Michael, welcome to the Populist Papers. Hey, how's it going? Thanks. Good, Appreciate good. That. Yeah. That's a very nice introduction, I guess. Oh, it's my pleasure. I guess. I guess. It's great <laughs> having you with us. So, could you just tell us a little bit, please, about who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. Uh, basically, I make films. Um, I direct and shoot and usually edit all my stuff. And uh, the company that I have is indie. Is, we're an indie company, you know, but I have a lot of experience in various sides of cinema. And cinema being primarily has always been my primary focus. However, you know, I mean, we have other stories and series and things like that that we, you know, do and things that I've worked on and so on and so forth. So, but I've been doing filmmaking since I was probably about 13 years old. So, you know, and I've been shooting my own stuff for a long time. So, um, Lucky studying 13. it. And, right, 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 sure. Uh, so, you know, at the end of the day, I've um, done a lot of shorts, a lot of music videos and commercial stuff, um, feature film. I've worked in development for, you know, different companies in the studio world. Um, you know, I've done um, some pretty intense work on another feature film that was a pretty big movie. Uh, and I got a couple of other things, you know, just lots of stuff. You know, and I worked in distribution with another company and did some development with them. And, you know, so, you know, very almost, I think personally, I've almost had experience in almost every single aspect, including the financial and the economic aspect of filmmaking. Because, you know, the means to create the work that I was in love with. So I've never really went, oh, let's make this it's, Let's make this film. It's going to make a lot of money. Hmm. I look at it like this is a very good idea. Because I, I really subscribe to the, you know, the concept that, that actually the philosophy behind cinema, that cinema is driven by ideas, not money. Money is just one aspect of it. It's just a, it's like It's like the camera. That's it. Oh. But it's the idea that's the most important. 
uh, Oliver Stone was a filmmaker that inspired me at one point because of the politics he had. Right. Uh, the way he wanted to, you know, JFK was an extraordinary film, and so was Platoon and One of Fourth of July. You know, David Fincher is a wonderful director. You know, he's a really brilliant director. You know, uh, Christopher Nolan's made some wonderful films. You know, we're talking about American directors now. Well, yeah, you know, and but there's also some. Nolan, uh, just making The Prestige, one of my favorites, and oh, putting it's, it's David absolutely. Bowie as Nikola Tesla. I know you're working oh, yeah. on a Tesla project right now, and it boggles my mind that just in a few years, you know, we had Bowie playing Tesla, and now we got a Tesla car. It's like the power of cinema. Yeah, yeah. Well, all of those ideas, I mean, they, they formulate. I mean, that's part of our social, you know, it's the power of art. Art is a huge component of everything. Uh, you know, creativity is a massive expression. It's a tool that we have and, and also a state of mind, a state of consciousness, in my opinion. Yeah. And, and all those things are very positive. They uplift people and they express people. They allow people to have solace. You know, look at P.T. Anderson's movies. Yeah. You know, P, you know, uh, There Will Be Blood is actually, even though it, it explores the thematic elements of what he's, you know, uncovering with this, you know, really just ruthless capitalist. He gets into his humanity and starts asking questions between him and his faith, and there's a lot of symbolism in that film. But he gets into an intimate aspect of it, and Magnolia's the same way, very intimate, you know. So there's so many different variations, and of course Tarantino is a wonderful, you know, art auteur. You know, I tend to really enjoy the auteur films more so than any of them. It's funny you brought those two up, um, kind of adjacently, because I thought Hateful Eight and There Will Be Blood are like two of the best Westerns ever made. I feel like Tarantino's they're, almost they're trying to one-up. Really, yeah, they're, they're really well done. Hateful Eight's actually extraordinarily underrated. Uh, it's a really well-done film, really well-written screenplay, and it's beautifully um, staged. It really worked. Uh, you know, it's just not everybody's cup of tea. A lot of Tarantino is kind of polarizing with his own cult, you know, his own cult audience, mm-hmm. I guess. And it doesn't matter, you know. It's a good film, it, it could be entertaining, it could be uplifting, but what it has to do is speak to you. Um, something it that, depends. that really amazes me about There Will Be Blood was it is the ultimate Western in that there's no cops, there's no judges, there's no lawyers at any point. It is kind of this libertarian wet dream. Just anything goes, you know, no government. Yeah, anything. Right. But but you did have a certain guideline that was coming into it. You had the, you know, the kind of the religious zealotry that was going on. And there was a combination between capitalism versus religion. Or, you know, there is, there is a definite war between these two ideology or these types of ideas that were going in there. A lot of interesting ideas that go into, the, in, into that picture, uh, besides the fact that it was such a rough uh, world to mine oil to begin with, you know. So, you know but, but, you know, back to cinema. Cinema has so many different aspects, and that's definitely all those things we just talked about are all pieces to why I do what I do, well, you know, why I love to do what I do. You know, anyway, no, no, not at all. You are a very rare trifecta, it sounds like, because, I mean, not only are you so prolific, but you've worked on all sides of production and you tend to do things that really have a purpose. And all three of those things are kind of rare, it seems like, in Hollywood. So so good on you. Um, oh, thanks. Yeah, I, I never, uh, every story, you know, I, I wrote a story about energy it was, uh, when I was 15 or a screenplay called Fusion, and it was because I read an article about Cold Fusion. And it was one of the groundbreaking articles in Time Magazine where somebody really was working on it, and they had some significant results. And so I wrote a story about, um, you know, uh, somebody having technology, and politicians and corporations wanted to steal it. 
and it was in the future where the population was extraordinarily poor and there was only some, you know, and uh, oil and uh, fossil fuels became the norm as a um, monetary uh, unit into credits. So credits were based on the amount of oil that existed. So all those things were used as a form of power to control people, and this scientist creates fusion. And uh, he hires a bounty hunter who used to be a toy maker who refused to make toys for weapons and decided to become a bounty hunter to help people out for in exchange for some coin. He goes across the country. This day, you just you know, go ahead and Bluetooth it. <laughs> yeah, send it over. But he had he had schematics and a, and, a, and a, you know he also had a you know he had a uh, a device and all this stuff and they had to transport it somewhere where they can the only safe place in their region, which was broken up into zones, to where they can actually give it to the public. Because his goal was to give it away. It wow. wasn't to make money out of it. And to and to destroy the control that the fossil fuel industry had over people politically and, and uh, economically, and that was years ago. And I've been um, one of the things that really I think when I saw I also read uh, some interesting books at that time. I had read uh, a lot of esoteric stuff even when I was twelve. So I, I was uh, you know even before then, and I had read a lot of interesting things about phenomena and uh, extraterrestrial phenomena at a very very young age. Uh, and, uh, you know, anything and everything from Atlantis to, uh, you know, paranormal activity, things like that. I remember seeing the Tesla car and researching it back in 2004 when it was just a go-kart in 1999-2000. And I remember they finally got a model together and they, you know, did the speech to the roaster. And then uh, the PayPal guy came on, Elon Musk, and bought it out and then changed the direction of it because they were running out of money. They were going broke, mm. and they needed some support, and they were trying to use the Lotus as a, as a way. You know, I think they made a deal with Lotus to create the first Roadster. And, and, and it, you know, it, was, it got people's attention, but not as much as you'd think um, because a lot of it was geared towards elitists, people who could afford it because, I mean, it's not a cheap car. Mm. So unless you're making 500000 to $2 million a year or above, it's, it's hard to afford a $110,000 car, you know, but it was being worked on all these different cars. You're talking about the Stanley Meyer car, the water car, all these different uh, cars and uh, energy things have been worked on for years. And there was a battery car. The first one was in 1863. I think it was the guy who made a battery buggy. Damn. You know, first battery car. It was a buggy. Mm. And it made everything change. You know, technology is a very big factor in how economics works. Not just, you know, ethics and so on and so forth. Or, you know, you know, economics and things like that. Science. You know, science is a factor in this. It's interesting because with medicine, you know, uh, uh, people didn't do surgery are often. First off, you'd be called a necromancer way back when <laughs> if you were doing surgery. It was, it, it was, it was heresy to yeah. cut somebody open. But when people were allowed to do this, uh, they didn't wash their hands. And it wasn't until thousands of years later, oh, yeah, by the way, if you just keep your hands clean, you won't get bacteria inside the body. And they won't die immediately after they're done getting cut up. <laughs> so, I mean, real common sense stuff. I mean, you, you, to us, we think, oh, of course you wash your hands. I'm not put my, you know. But back then, they, the people were dirty. They didn't have access to running water all the time. They didn't bathe all the time. It was, it, especially uh, pe most people, because they were very poor. You know, they didn't have access to hardly anything. You know, if you had access to running water or any kind of water at that level, you had to have been either aristocracy or extraordinarily affluent. Hmm. You know, you know that, that, it shows you the differences between where we were and where we are today. Right. In some respects, you know, that's yeah. A lot of those things are taken for granted. I mean, we were talking earlier about religion, and you know, that's a 
big part of Judaism is the ritual washing of the hands. And, you know, I'm sure they were seen as like idiots. Like, what are you putting your hand in water for, you idiot? No, somebody back then had a good understanding that that cleanliness had to do with, uh, you know, preventing infection. You know, know, it just hasn't been um, such a, in such great quantities like we've ever seen it. There was always hints of this, even in their Greek times. You know, I mean, whether you're talking about Aristotle and Plato, those are philosophers and Socrates who encouraged the questioning of things and these unexamined life and so on and so forth. But there was also scientific breakthroughs, architectural breakthroughs. There was uh, astronomical uh, breakthroughs in understanding our relationship with the universe. I mean, and they already proved the world was round. It was, uh, I think it was Aristarchus or somebody else. Oh, well. And they took, uh, uh, Aristarchus basically put a post up in one part of the of, I think it was in Egypt, and then put a post up in another part in Italy or something like that. I, I could, I'm probably wrong on the locations, but the, this experiment is very simple. You put one up at 12 noon, you know, 4,000, or excuse me, uh, 700, 800 miles away, and put one up in the same position, and you just look at what the angle of the shadow was. And that told you that there was a bend. Uh, right. Yeah. Well, I know Kabbalah uh, is considered the first publication to assert sort of the spherical nature of the Earth and the universe. But, yeah, they probably weren't really able to prove anything until then. It wasn't even until recently, really, in the last hundred years, where the average person who didn't make very much money had access to college. You had to have a lot of money. It just wasn't easy. And then until the GI Bill was passed, after all these uh, soldiers came back from WW2, they got access to college. And all of a sudden there was a huge explosion of scientists, doctors, and engineers and all this stuff, and we had the space race. It was unreal. Oh, definitely. I mean, investing in education is one of the best things we can do. I believe I've seen the statistic. Uh, it was for every dollar that we invested into the GI Bill, we got back seven dollars. Right, and and, that, and I think the word investment is correct. Now, some people will argue, well, it's socialism and all this stuff. You know, regardless, it makes regardless of where it came from. The point is, is that we have access and continued access to have resources that provide these types of groundbreaking um, systems, like, you know, higher learning. And higher learning, I'm not talking about vocational trade. I'm talking about higher learning. Now, you can get a vocational trade, but higher learning is when you're exploring every subject to have a deeper understanding uh, of people and uh, everything. And it's also to get you exposed to how certain thoughts, or, you know, uh, in the way things are created. For example, you got comparative religions or comparative philosophy. Well, you get an exposure to all kinds of things, the classics. If you look back at the Constitution, it was also created by men who were part of a brotherhood, a fraternity, uh, Freemasons and, some, and like-minded individuals and nobles of the time, a lot of educated people. Uh, you know, there's very few people who are advocating for, you know, such, you know, intense human rights, like, you know, universal suffrage was Thomas Paine's idea. Thomas Paine was a big proponent of universal suffrage. He wanted to get rid of slavery. He also wanted a UBI, which is a universal basic income. Ooh, the irony we're is, talking. Yeah, and he wanted that. It was going to be the agrarian worker's income. It was guaranteed no matter what that nobody would be starving, ever. You know, you'd have this money and you'd do what you counted. Now, they didn't have medical facilities back then, and they didn't have uh, social structures like you'd see today. Uh, but they, that was actually something he tried to put in the Constitution. Wow. Um, all these different, yeah, yeah. He literally tried to get the abolishment of slavery right out. No indentured servants. Uh, everybody was allowed to vote, and everybody had a place to be able to contribute. And they said no, of course, because it threatened the slave system. Slaves were also used as a, as a vehicle to keep workers from getting better pay. So they'd threaten them and say, hey, look, if you don't like the wage, we'll just hire a slave. We'll buy a slave. 
so they can control the wage system. So there's a lot of aspects in that time period that really weren't very good. They weren't good at all. And, and it took a long time for people to move and, you know, change the way they viewed things, the way they viewed people, and things evolve. And the Constitution itself has evolved. Some for the good, uh, some not good enough, and some kind of archaic. Well, I, I How we got to this? Kind of, well, I, I, I wanted to touch on, it's sort of a recurring theme here, is this idea that a lot of these exciting things we're talking about, they're not new, they've just kind of been hidden. And they're hidden in plain sight. You know, my favorite game right, right. as a kid was uh, Hide and Go Seek. And that's sort of like what we're talking about, like knowledge is meant to be hidden. Um, but how film, Yeah, I, well, I, I actually don't. That's interesting. I, I don't think, I think even from, you know, I think uh, there are some people who, who are aware that when you don't tell somebody something, there's an advantage. So if you're looking at a comp- competitive advantage, you want to look at things from strictly a competition perspective, or what can I get that this person can't? Well, you have knowledge, and you know. so let's say you have a Monopoly board, and X amount of people on a Monopoly board are going to make all these wonderful things and do all these architectural elements, and then these people know nothing about anything. So there's an advantage they have in regards to a political power and the ability to control things. So there is some aspect of reality to that, but in retrospect, we have also had quite a revolution over the last 200 years of knowledge being offered to people, of college education being available, of a freer society uh, all over, whether it's Europe or here. Uh, And there have been more opportunities for people to learn and, and, and discover new things. So there has been an explosion of that as well. And I think it was absolutely meant to be. Because we wouldn't be even talking about it right now on the phone through a podcast on the internet. <laughs> All those things were silenced or they just weren't even available. I mean, just the fact that the printing press took forever to get to. Now we have the internet. Now, granted, the internet's not always perfect because, you know, it's, it's neutral. So whatever you put into it and whatever you get out of it is all based on people and what they decide to commerce with intellectually or, you know, uh, thought-wise or personally. And all those things are going to be affected by it. And there's a lot of garbage and, you know, confusion and noise on the Internet, just like there would be, as you would expect. Um, but there's also a lot of wonderful um, access to information we never had. Right. And it was absolutely meant to be. If it wasn't meant to be, we wouldn't have it. No, accessibility. Just be here. And, yeah, that's exactly what I want to talk about. And that's how it, it kind of all does connect with cinema you know, making things more accessible and making, like you said, it's its own language. It's a much more digestible kind of language. Um, yeah. It's, I, go ahead. It's not scientific. I mean, cinema is interesting because you can't really, you know, the you know confusion between cinema and science are two different things. Science is, is, is empirical. Cinema is passionate and it's also poetic. So it's, it's a subjective language as well as it can be somewhat if you, if you put the information in there absolutely accurate. It could be empirical on some level, but the cinema is a little bit more than that. It's not about sitting in a lab and, or even documentaries. There's various types of documentaries. There's polemics. There's propaganda documentaries. There's agenda documentaries. There's documentaries that are extraordinarily dry, and they look at the function of a praying mantis and what it does for its day. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean... That'd be like <laughs> a, a British-style document. documentary. <laughs> well, it, that's more scientific, so yeah. it's more empirical. You know, it's, it's looking at information, saying this is how it works, this is how things are. Uh, and so on and so forth. So that's a much more objective point of view in regards to science, and that's the perspective it has. Uh, whereas cinema explores ideas. Again, I'll go back to the word of ideas. Ideas don't have boundaries. They're meant to be expressive, and they're our imagination. So we're going to explore with them. And science fiction, I think, is arguably one of my favorite subjects uh, in cinema uh, to play with. I, most of my 
projects that I've done always incorporate some kind of science fiction. Mm. Uh, you know, Dresden's Sun is about the same thing with interpreters. Uh, it, it deals with high technology. Uh, it also deals with the economic elements of rival corporations and the banks, you know, trying to control things and so on and so forth. And it was it, it was a direct reflection of what was going on with the bailouts and, you know, obviously all these other elements that went into play in regards to read currencies, collect dollar obligations. The list goes on in regards to all this garbage that people were selling. But at the end of the day, uh, science fiction is always, a, and ideas in science fiction, I, mean, I think Spielberg said this too, with Minority Reporter AI, I think it was, when he was doing the interview. Um, he said that it's so much fun because you can. There's no rules. You can play with any idea in science fiction. Explore the you know, whole you, spectrum. That's right, and science fiction really allows you to do that. I, I think, though, to be fair, abstract art allows you to do that too. It doesn't have concept to it, and, and you know, so cinema is a unique language and a unique communication platform and, and a storytelling area that allows you to play with all kinds of ideas. It is. You know, it's, it there's nothing yeah. else like it. And I'd say cinema, it's not only a tool for the betterment of society, but it's also kind of the most powerful form of magic. And when you talk about... Yeah, it, it was definitely illusion. Definitely. Yeah, um, a lot of people, you know, it's like, oh, nothing's happening. Is this all that happens in this movie or whatever? And it's like, they don't get that. You need to kind of surrender yourself. You're, you're, you're right. being put and that's under a spell. Though. Yeah, I mean, between, you know, whether it's the magic of being entertained and these wondrous special effects that you see with some really cool stories. I mean, I love The Lord of the Rings. It's a very deep film, by the way, or a deep story. Tolkien's story is extraordinarily sophisticated on an emotional level mm -hmm. and also on a, on a um, worldly level. But, you know, Star Wars is, is also another interesting one. It's extraordinarily geopolitical. So it's arguably one of those political things, I think, ever in the mainstream media that most people don't really pay attention to, especially the first three are extraordinarily political. Um, but he also maintains this whole fantasy edge to it. And he brings you into this other world. His childlike spirit comes out and he shows you these fun things. And, and they're very entertaining, but they're also still playing with ideas. And, and when you're dealing with cinema, there's, there technically isn't any rules in cinema. You can shoot it any way you want, however you want, and say whatever you want. There is no formula. Right. You, there are some formulas that work to tell a story efficiently. So you can get from point A to point B and understand the characters and so on and so forth in there. I mean, the, the, you know, the 30, uh, 30, 60, 30 is a classic example of a screenplay. You know, 30 minutes, you got a setup. 60 minutes, you got conflict. 30 minutes, you got a, you know, resolution, three acts, the three act structure. And that goes along with also the hero journey, which is archetypally the most understood systemic um, uh, structure. I guess, if you want to call it, uh, a storytelling that has been used in almost every single form of literature around the world. So it's universal. Yeah, that's you know, Joseph Campbell's the theory, You'll see right? You know, right. Well, yeah, he's an, he's an academic you know, professor on the subject, yeah. But didn't I mean, he coin you can the see term? In the back of the, you'll see it. Yeah, pretty much. It, will see, it comes from his book, From Heroes of a Thousand Faces. Ah. That's the book that he wrote. And that's where primarily all that comes out. And then it became quite a phenomenon later when um, Bill Moyers interviewed him and he did the movie, uh, the book, Power of Myth. But it's from Heroes, Hero with a Thousand Faces. He's written several texts, but it has to do with his understanding both uh, anthropologically, sociologically, and in literature, the relationships of all the different literature around the world and what they share in common and what their, you know, what their themes are and what their structure is and what people are. And where's the truth in that? And why is that pattern there? And he, he discovered all these different patterns. And, you know, now we've obviously used it, you know, for economic reasons to make the business of movie making very profitable. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it can get, you know, like in economic theory, they have what you call the law of diminishing return, which I 
it's questionable law of diminishing return. And it, it depends on how you look at it. But in some respects, um, uh, something can be overplayed, you know, if you use that same formula over and over again. But then again, if it's efficiently done, it doesn't matter. It works too. So, you know, that's the common formula of, uh, of American cinema. Anyway. Well, I love the idea of the monomyth. And you know, That's all, yeah. it's so many people, you know, they'll read the Bible over and over or they'll read uh, Greek mythology over and over, but that's it. It's this ongoing story and what character you relate to. It could be your favorite novel. You know, you read it again in a few years, you relate to a different character, or maybe you identify with a different aspect of one of the same right, characters. Right. That's why, yeah, sure. a lot of these, these gods and these archetypes have several aspects, which part of Hermes, you know, do you identify with? And, um... Yeah, so just connecting this, because my next question this is interesting. You talked about Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell. There's probably no other people I know of that had such a deep understanding of this concept of the archetype. So why archetype pictures? I mean, what is it about that word, archetype? That... Well, it's primary. Well, if you go back, it, it is literally that. The archetype is the prototype. So if you look at the... Uh, you, there's an archetypal DNA, maybe, uh, that goes all the way back into stardust. I mean, you know, there's, maybe there's an archetypal Big Bang. You know, the point is, is that it means it's a prototype. It's the first, the very facet of what everything comes from and stems from, which is universal principle or universal um, uh, something. The source. You know, and, and, and a source of some sort. Uh, archetype is really the universal, you know, even in science we see it, right? So you have, uh, that's stretching a little bit, but... There are universals in science that we discover, you know, for example, you know, atomic uh, energy and things like that. All these different, you know, protons, neutrons, all those things have laws that we understand, and they have constants, and they are, in some respects, universal. Mathematics, in some respects, is archetypal, because if you use it a certain way, now you can write it out differently. There might be a different way of doing the same thing, but it's about finding patterns and measuring them a certain way. Uh, it's the same with story. Stories are the same way. Politics, ideologies, religion, they all have archetypes in them. You know, they're all, and I would say archetype really is more about um, truth than anything, in my opinion. Might be prototype, might be universal, but it's all the things and all the stories and all the ideas that we find that we can share and that we understand that bring us together in regards to our humanity so we can have some understanding. And archetype is definitely a powerful word for that. Now, in some respects, archetype uh, as a story can be um, two-dimensional. And there's very different facets through each, you know, segment of history where people experience different things. So, but there's still an archetype in each one of them in their own rights. So, you know, uh, that's definitely what influenced the name. I, I loved Joseph Campbell. I had a massive um, uh, influence from Joseph Campbell. I went to a preparatory school, a secondary school. It was a preparatory school where the format was teaching in Joseph Campbell's Hero Journey. Wow. Uh, analyzing, analyzing a lot of different uh, texts from uh, Thomas More to, you know, to Shakespeare and everything. Well, another and thing I loved about that, Joseph yeah. Campbell was he was calling out vegetarians back in his day. He was like, guys, it's all solar energy, whether you're eating plants, animals, not to put the vegan movement down, you know, in a lot of ways, right. it's, it's an extension of the kosher movement, just being mindful of how you eat. And it, it was really what? cool to see, you know, he was... Always... Well, that's also critical thinking. Again, that's right. another variation of critical thinking. You know, I mean, you know, are you going to... What do you, what do you want to do to make your life healthier if you want to? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. if you want the vices, that's fine. Go get a cheeseburger. You know, well, that's the whole point of liberty, right? But at the end of the day, critical thinking is something that um, 
is a very prominent thing. The thing about the archetype stuff, it's about trying to find the relationships with everything. It's a form of syncretism in storytelling around the world so that human beings can share their stories with each other, which they do. They always, they already do. And each culture has a different way of experiencing and sharing it. But there are universals in a lot of them. And I think that's where archetype comes from, for me. And I, I think that's, uh, you know, I love the word. It's a beautiful word in yes. some respects. And, and, and it, uh, it has a direct influence because of my influence with who we are and right. what our relationship is. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned the bicameral brain earlier, and it, it kind of is like depending on what we're going through, you know, it's different ways of understanding our own human condition through these other stories, you know? Right, right, sure. And, and then you have, you know, the other thing is that the, with storytelling, you also get to explore new ideas. And it's the same thing with art when you paint. And when you're painting, you're exploring new ideas. It's creative. Creativity, to me, is the foundation of what drives a person to discover things like E equals MC squared. You know, I mean, even Einstein himself would say the same thing when he was alive. He, 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 you know, there is a creativity and storytelling. All these different things are wonderful facets of our positive side of who we are as people, and how we can create and do things that are pretty magnificent or make better understanding to reduce suffering in the world. If that makes any sense. Oh, definitely. And and in 2006, it was 2005 actually when I came up when I found I was like, this is the name. I guess I grew up watching Paramount or watching Universal, and I love the names that some of these actual studios have because they are powerful in regards to what they symbolize. And Universal is a wonderful name. It has a it has the Earth. It has a you know Universal. It's a, it's a wonderful thing in regards to what it says. And these stories are Universal. Now, right, it's right, right. funny so, you bring up the Universal logo. Actually, in my opening rant, just so you know where I'm coming from, there was a lot of uh, cognitive reframing. Even the names of yeah. Facebook groups that were all scary. Like, there was one, it was called uh, Bloodlines of the Illuminati. I, I probably should have left that group, but they just kept posting so much cool stuff. But I noticed uh, right around the time I, I, I took a, a really formative trip to Northern California, I came back and they had renamed the group Freedom to Be in the Know. And I thought, wow, what a positive spin. This isn't some like, oh my God, we're slaves to the Illuminati. It was like, no, this is a privilege. This is your freedom to be in the know, in the loop. Um, but right. I remember watching the Universal movie logo around that same time. And, you know, I am a third generation SoCal native. And, um, you know, a lot of what the show is about is Southern California and how we kind of have been setting the standard for so many of these different disciplines, cinema, obviously, real estate, you know, and the rest of the world kind of seems to be following suit. Um, I'm also pretty comfortable that we're not going to get bombed because we're the most diverse state, you know, anywhere on Earth. And the universal... Well, I, I think we're still the most... I think also still fifth or sixth largest economy in the world, California. Yes. Save that California is a ventricle for commerce and innovation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I understand. And, and you know, California is a unique place. I'm from the Northwest. I'm from the Seattle area. I'm not... Uh, I grew up in Bellevue, Issaquah, oh. and um, Redmond area, primarily. And, and I was there when Microsoft just got off, was like starting to become really big, and Starbucks was becoming really big. It was interesting. It's a different, but the West Coast is in itself, you know, is, is a very interesting place. And California is, is has been quite a hub for a lot of things. Absolutely. You know, a lot of trial and error California has been through, but you know, California is a, a very unique place. You know, 
Oh, it really uh, is. Yeah, and if you look at that, you know, I, I can't give you the exact year, but it was like the main Universal logo that, you know, that little intro, the one that I grew up with in the 80s and 90s, and it was just a slow spin. But if you notice, I loved it. It starts yeah. at China. The word universal is the equator, and it actually follows from China, you know, the oldest standing. It goes all the way around the world. Right. And, it, you know, yeah, it goes over awesome. Arabia yeah, yeah. And, and Europe, and then it stops. The earth literally stops spinning, and the logo just clicks into place at yeah. California when the U of all letters, you know, the union hits California. And it's like, oh, the buck stops here. This is what you were saying and earlier. I think that, and that's. That I mean, from an artistic, aesthetic point of view, it's appropriate. Universal Pictures has put out some, a really interesting slew of films in their library. Even though they're a corporation now, they're owned by somebody else, owned by GE at this point. The point is, is that Universal, when they first were a studio, and keep in mind, money has always been the thing with studios anyway. But the people who write the stories and the people who create the stuff—that's another. That's not their drive, really. And and Universal Pictures uh, had a really those. You and I both grew up with that. Those came out at you in the theaters. Those came out at you on, you know, on the TV, and they did represent that. They were archetypal, archetypal names. You know, mm-hmm. it's the same thing with Time Warner. Time, time. The word time. I mean, that's as archetypal as it gets. Dude, they're they warning a company you. named Time. They're warning but, you. About and they're time. warning you. Oh, yeah, they're warning you. Well, there's that too, but there's also, I mean, even the name Time Magazine. Time is a very powerful name. And it's it's archetypal because we understand it, it, you know. And there's something to be said about that. Now you can call that brilliant branding, or you can call it inspiring new ideas and associating it with the integrity of that. Now, granted, a lot of these corporations have, you know, have obviously smeared in some respects their own integrity at times. You know, Universal's made some bad movies, but so has everybody else. So you know, yeah, uh, it doesn't really matter. It, it, what matters is it, it's the idea that that's being communicated in some of these um, things and. And I, I always felt like, well, if I'm going to have a production development company, I want the name to be completely about everybody. Mm. You know, I want it to be universal. You know, no, no pun intended. I wanted it to be something that represented what it is that inspired me and probably inspires everybody else about cinema and about storytelling and about creativity and about ideas. And, and that was, you know, again, you see that with some of those other logos. Paramount's interesting. Um, there's a couple of others, you know, they were pretty cool, yeah. But uh, those are the ones that stand out the most to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, you brought up a couple times that you know all this stuff—it's kind of happening for a reason. There is intention behind it, but well, not necessarily intention, but purpose. And I want to connect that to you know, like the David Lynch style of filmmaking or the abstract style of painting. It, it's almost otherworldly, like you don't know what you're doing. And just to connect with the Universal logo, it's like it goes literally from China to California. It's east meeting west, and that's what California. Yeah, and then, is. And, and 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 whether the artisans that you know, whether the special effects artists that came in, or maybe the marketing department, or whoever is in charge of doing that, maybe that was intentional. They say, well, that should be cool because it starts in east, east meets west. What a great idea! We get the stories from the east, we get the stories from the west, we put them together. We make stories for everybody. Right. And so somebody might have sat there and said that. That's what it should be. And that's understandable. And yeah, you know? and just the fact that we all kind of end up here. Like nobody's L- excluded, basically. Right, right. And that's what I'm saying. L.A. It's like the ultimate freak show. It's like the the bus line ends here. Like we all show up, and it's like this coming together. And the fact that it's kind of we are unaware of it, but there is 
purpose behind it. It's almost like this mystical idea that, which which I know is big in Judea's uh, Jewish mysticism, that we're kind of in Kabbalah, yeah. we're we're co partners with the divine. Whatever is out there, that source we were talking about, it's kind of using us to figure itself out. It's interesting. It's very interesting. Yeah. You know, we you... keep, I mean, mind, all these things are also influenced by the way the way nature is. You know, all these concepts are buried right within nature's laws. You know, all of them. You know, all these different things are represented in somewhere in those what we discover about um, life, and, and we even, uh, you know, from a different perspective, you know, scientifically. Or emotionally, you know, but they're all related. <laughs> and they grow accordingly, right? Yeah. So, you know, Did you... you know, we learn accordingly, or we, we make errors accordingly, if you want to call it that. Right, so, right. And that's all part of the this kind of coming together process. And it is very chaotic. Um, I mean, film itself is kind of this 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 form of chaos magic. You know, we talked about how many elements go in, and that it's this really complex, powerful tool. But it's uh, did you ever see The Wild Child by Truffaut? You know, that's I didn't see that film. It's, I have not. It's seen the Wild not Child. one of my favorites. I don't even necessarily recommend it. But it's one of those things. Like, do you ever read a book or a play, and then at the very end, there's some notes. And they talk about like how it connects to mythology or something. You're like, oh yeah, that was great. Like you didn't enjoy it at the time, but it resonates for a reason. And the wild child is interesting because uh, well, Truffaut actually plays the guy himself. Um, He plays this school teacher that finds like uh, a kid. It's like the reverse of Tarzan. You know, it's a kid born you know from the wild, and they're trying to sort of um, sophisticate, civilize him. And the kid yeah. is literally wild. You know, it's this chaotic thing. And I didn't really enjoy the film, but someone told me, you realize Truffaut is... I, I can see where Truffaut is coming from. He, he always, I think, because personally, the way he grew up, he always had this... Um, he seemed, in his work, it seemed to reflect a, a type of... He, he likes that whole spirit of the teenager. The Wild Child, it's, you know, it's really hard. It's a difficult time, but it's like a metaphor for the filmmaking process. You oh, may sure. not have yeah. that much control in the end, but it's kind of this this ongoing process, trying to come together, trying to create something, but total chaos at the same yeah, time. Yeah, and film is interesting because you can storyboard everything a certain way and so on and so forth and try different things. And and, and it's not always what... Well, there's also another process that happens in editorial and all that. You know, I, I, There's so many filmmakers who say this as well. They don't entirely know how it's really going to come out. Even Kubrick is... is I mean, Kubrick said this. He said, I, Kubrick said this, I don't know what I want. I know what I don't want. <laughs> so, <laughs> deductive. You know, and very deductive. But he was in a process of carving away something he was looking for. Or he knew what it was, but he didn't know necessarily how the best way to get it was. Um, or it would change because he'd feel the evolutionary process of his own artistic storytelling going on. Now, the podcast, uh, the reason I'm calling it The Populist Papers in part is because of Ralph Nader. He pointed out that there's, I think, like 27 issues, probably a whole lot more if you really dig down into it. But um, these issues that pretty much every American would agree on, you know, now it gets a little bit tweaked because in polls and things like that, you know, they're asked in a certain way and it's very divisive. But, you know, just basic things, getting money out of politics, making uh, healthcare and education more affordable, clean energy. Uh, and clean energy in particular, who the hell would be against that? Except maybe people who don't make money off of it. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe a lobbyist or, or just someone that's so brainwashed in like the oil. Only field. only only a hardcore corporatist slash capitalist would be against that because they can't make money off of it. Right. Abundance is not in the cards for a corporation. Mm -hmm. They don't want abundance. They don't want to see that level of sustainability. Because if you bring the abundance in, it means you drive the price down. It's basically there's nothing they can do with it financially. Yeah. However, the species totally elevates completely. It benefits everybody. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we're all better I mean, if, off. You, if you if you if you made if you made every house completely sustainable, which you can do scientifically today, uh, you would never need oil, fossil fuel. You would never have a carbon footprint. You wouldn't have any of these things. And you can do it literally. You can build a home to be completely co and cohesive with the environment. You can build a home with resources that uh, aren't nearly as disastrous to the ecosystem. So, I mean, all those things are doable. But, of course, why build something, according to you know, a corporatist, they believe in obsolescence because they can't profit from it if it is. Exactly. You know, they, they want things to be broken because <laughs> yeah. they can't make money without it. <laughs> they need it to look like, because if you develop a great product, nobody else is going to want to buy anything else. So just keep making that one. I say, well, that's the future. That's the whole idea is to get away from the scarcity, to get away from some of these problems so that you don't have to be fighting about these things anymore. You know, and then, you know, go trade something else. It's planned obsolescence. That's one of the oldest tricks in the book. <laughs> right. And people still think that it's it's just so futuristic or fantastical um, to do, like we were saying, you know, building in harmony with nature. You know, man is of no, nature. It's, it's not, yeah, it's, it's not impossible. No, it's right within our fingertips. And um, one of my favorite books, Ecotopia, is all about that. Um, have you heard of it? No, but it sounds familiar. Yeah, familiar. it's all it's basically just California and uh Oregon and Washington seceding from the federal government. Oh wait, it's a it's a novel. Right. Well, it's kind I've of a it. blueprint for the future, but it's disguised okay, as a Okay, yeah, novel. no, I think I read a little bit of that years ago. Right. I think I read a little bit of that. There was like three of them. My, my take on it is um the way the Turner Diaries is kind of a blueprint for like a uh an alt-right revolution, this is a blueprint for a self-sustainable revolution. Right. Okay. And um, yeah, they don't have garbage trucks in Ecotopia. Well, Cascadia is what they call their country. Yeah, Sweden's already doing that. They're, I mean, they have garbage trucks, but they're getting rid of their garbage. Right. You it's all that, biodegradable. Right? Well, they turn it into fucking energy. They basically have a whole entire infrastructure, and now people are shipping them garbage, and they're getting free, <laughs> and they're getting energy out of it. So they're like, sure, no problem. The resources to to burn the garbage aren't nearly as bad as actually getting the power. Mm. So they figure we'll burn it and uh, call it a day. And then they found a way to make it basically 99.9% .9 toxic free wow. on their emissions. You know, good old science. Kicking ass again. I mean, there's so much power that is associated with oil. You know, and that, and that's why. They're, I mean, Saudi Arabia would pay anybody anything um, uh, to get rid of, to get, to keep a, to keep a patent. They pay them $200 billion. Wow. Because I mean, that's, you know, they would, they would, or kill them. Uh, I don't know. I don't know about that, but the point I'm making is it, because by taking the patent away, they'll still make their money back in another year. They might lose $200 billion, but in the next 10 years, because they've controlled the patent, they're still going to make more money. I mean, it's already a loss to consider it. And they've written it off over a period of 10 to 20 years. They figured, okay, well, we got to pay for this patent. So and what are their cost? Uh, how much do we have to pay this person off? You know, if they're making a revenue, a profit per year, $200 billion, um, and it only costs, I don't know, $40 billion to pay somebody off and get the patent from them. There you go. 
they lose $40 billion, but they're still going to make it again the following year. Uh, rather than making $200 billion for the next 10 years. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? It's like it's money. game. It's capitalism, dude. It's capital. That's how, that's how business is. They would rather pay it off and keep it scarce rather than having it uh, change the world. Mm. They're making so much money. <laughs> so, you know, then money is the religion of today's world. That's where ideas like post-scarcity comes from. You know, that's when you're dealing with problem-solving skills to actually resolve scarcity problems. And as opposed to trying to perpetuate uh, a system that actually promotes scarcity. Mm-hmm. And that's, to me, in my opinion, uh, you know, it's great to have liberty. It's great to have human rights. It's great to have all these different things. But nothing could be more liberating when you have abundance. Mm-hmm. The greatest liberation is not being a slave to an owner of a piece of property, a job uh, employer, or being at the mercy of debt or monetary units at all any legal system that creates this. Because if you don't have it, you are not liberated. You, your freedom is, is as almost as good as how much money you have, except for certain tenets that have been put in place by democracy to protect your rights, which are important. Um, but what truly liberates people is accessibility to resource. Mm. And that's the idea of scarcity. And scarcity ultimately is what creates um, choices, you know, in economics, right? So if you don't have this, you have to make a choice on what's the best alternative, the opportunity cost. So all those things go into the factor of economics. But as we create more things to be creative on abundance, that eliminates scarcity, which frees up more time to do other things that we otherwise wouldn't want to do. So, for example, the energy. Why do we need energy to be a power source? Why does that have to be involved in politics? Energy has been abused significantly to be used as a cartel with OPEC. It's been used for domination, and it's been used as a as a means for political power. If you got rid of that completely, which Tesla seemed to obviously know this, um, you would eliminate a significant portion of the oppression that's caused by government and state and corporate organizations because they wouldn't use that anymore. They wouldn't have it. So you're not at the mercy of somebody controlling it and doling it out you know, in a certain system, any system. And, of course, the monetary system unto itself is a form of building out what's available. Now, you can call it free market enterprise, and you get it based on, quote-unquote, what you earn. But if you walk into the monopoly game, you know, 10 years later, and everybody else owns the property, and you have five bucks, and you don't collect $200 when you go, where do you think your your, your, uh, chances are, right? Now, if you just, if the monopoly board just had an energy source and it was constantly abundant it's called the sun by the way <laughs> okay imagine that and the sun doesn't have and the, and the sun doesn't have a credit card machine it doesn't charge interest because it's meant to just give all those things are just meant to give that's how they were naturally put there that was before we created banking industries okay that was here way before that and they don't charge now there are certain opportunity costs when you get in front of the sun you can get cancer from it right and uh you know and it's limited been too long. only certain hours and, um, yeah yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, but you can still harness a certain amount of it and put it and store it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and also there's the ionosphere. And that's what Tesla was working on. He was working on a way to create um, an energy wirelessly powered through the ionosphere because there's a high, highly charged component of the atmosphere that has tons of electricity in it. And it's always there. And that's a protective magnetic, uh, electromagnetic field around the Earth. And I think that, uh, I may be wrong on this, but I think that also has to, somewhat to do with the fact that it keeps, not just the ozone layer, but it keeps, you know, you know the uh, x-rays and gamma radi- radiation. And, sorry, anyway, um, the, um, so the, you know, all those components are available. And Tesla was a threat 
you know, well, of course they're going to Tesla now, was a threat to uh, economic powers because it's not in their advantage to create abundance. And anybody who knows this in economics knows that abundance is not good for corporatism or capitalism. It's the opposite what happens of scarcity. When, correct. And what happens when we create scientific breakthroughs where everybody's going to benefit from them and it eliminates a huge portion of scarcity in key areas? It means you're not going to have a particular, nearly the amount of bureaucracy that is required to regulate it. Mm. Secondly, you're not going to have people trying to buy off the government to control it. And then third, you're not going to have to worry about paying for it with your labor and your time. So you just eliminated a significant problem, a structural problem with the world. Now people have freaking lighting in their homes. Now they have access to turning on things. Now they have running water with energy. They can push it through. That doesn't cost anything. And that's what we would call a zero marginal cost pro uh, progression, which is uh, a concept created by Larry Rifkin, I think his name is, an economist, futurist. He's a futurist, but he's an economist. And, and, and that's the idea. We are gradually, as you talk about open source, talk about post-scarcity, we also talk about you know, technology. You talk about nanotechnology. Well, it can benefit us significantly, but it also can be one of the most disastrous, most self-destructive technologies on the planet next to an atomic you know, uh, war, you know? So the scarcity is definitely a driver of these issues. And there's such thing as artificial scarcity. And a lot of the system that we have promotes artificial scarcity. And of course, all these people get exploited, right, within the system. So they create more regulations to try and cope with it. And then that creates more bureaucracy, which creates more cost and so on and so forth. So all that stuff is really, the, the problem solving is more about legal as opposed to science. Does that make any sense? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's and just, people it's are how thinking, to implement it. It's ideologically supported, not scientifically supported. So people are falling in ideology. Now, I understand a value system. Okay, we should have human rights, we want liberties and things like that. We shouldn't treat people like shit. Let's not have war, so on and so forth. Let's have laws and so on and so forth to put those in place to make sure that those tenets that we've written down on a piece of paper. And, and by the way, rights change all over the world. Everybody has different tenets of rights. The Constitution isn't the be-all, end-all declaration of rights. The UN actually has a pretty, pretty big list. Uh, England has their own list. Uh, France has their own list. Japan, all these countries have their own tenets. Very similar. A lot of them are very similar. Some of them are actually uh, more expansive, you know, and some people would call that progress. They would say, well, human rights also evolve based on our living conditions. So as we have better living conditions, we establish better rights to protect those living conditions. It's the same thing with energy. You, know, you could technically make every home in, as it stands even right now. I mean, Elon Musk is already doing this with his business, you know, the, the roof, roofing tiles. It's self -generated. The idea of taking... It's self-generating. Well, you know, a friend of mine, his other friend, uh, apparently, I don't know if he was a quantum physicist or not, but they worked, you know, there's, there's glass out there that takes UV light only mm. through glass and transfers it into a storage device, which can power up your phone and charge it. If you had an entire skyscraper, it was built out of a plexiglass format that had this layer to capture UV rate, you'd power up a significant portion of that area. Wow. There's so many advantages. And then you can go into nanocarbon fiber which is a piezoelectric fiber, and it's built at a zinc, and zinc oxide, I think. and it's built on a system called Bucky tubes. Bucky tubes basically are extraordinarily uh, quantum microscopic tube that creates zero resistance for electricity to go through with at, at room temperature. So it allows uh, energy to go by without resistance, which makes it more efficient to travel and less 
you know, it doesn't get as hot. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, it goes into a fabric. So when you shake the fabric, it's, it's uh, static electricity. So if you folded tons of these and you made tons of this fiber and put it underneath the floorboards and made a spongy effect that had kind of like a shock system on your floor, that would shake the in, in increments and still create power. Probably do it with a maglev train if you wanted to. You can probably do it with the freeway. There's so many ways and clever ways to harness what energy is not being used. And the, and the key in thermodynamics is, uh, you know, and there's also that key, nothing's lost, it's always transferred. Well, you know, you look at a combustion engine, it only uses, from what I understand, 30 to 40% of its energy. Everything else is just waste unless you have a turbo. And the turbo takes the exhaust and, and, and utilizes it to bring more horsepower into the car. That's a very inefficient use of energy. Mm-hmm. So you're losing a lot of it. Now, if you're creating systems that harness energy that's being lost, then you're going to really benefit from it. And a lot of the systems we have today aren't very efficient. You know, now hydroelectrics is a good thing. The turbine you're talking—I think you were mentioning something about. Um, you know, there's also the the buoys, the water buoys, which uh, get—you know—they stay in one place and they float around and actually create energy from movement underneath the ocean. There's also uh, OTAC, which is ocean thermal technology. Uh, which is a different system, very complicated. Uh, and then there's, um, you know, obviously there's the water turbines, you know, ocean turbines, which Israel does. Yes. Um, oh, I yeah. I spent a little bit of time out there, and I would actually love for Los Angeles to kind of reach out as a sister city. Oh. I know Israel's not yeah. really a city, but what they do with aquaponics and greenhouse technology, it's really, really oh, sure. mind-boggling. And Scotland, apparently, is, is the first nation. Did you read this? Um, they are implementing implementing like a just large scale tidal power right. uh, generator. So things happening. are definitely happening. I'm. Um, well, there's a lot of stuff. Yeah, well, you mean Iceland's been doing stuff like this too. Um, Costa Rica has been doing a lot. Chile's been doing a lot. Australia's been doing a lot. I mean, these are areas that go beyond business. This is not about making money. This is about eliminating an actual problem that has perpetuated a structurally. Um, destructive system. Uh, and, and we are, whether people want to admit this or not, yes, we're individuals, but we're also part of the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And we're related and we're interdependent. And in some respects, if we want our species to thrive, you have to look into these new avenues and these new ideas that will eliminate a lot of issues. And, and a lot of issues that people complain about and people protest about, people fight, and so on and so forth. And one of your barriers is primarily those who have an incredible amount of power and money who don't want it to happen because they're afraid that that's going to ultimately obliterate their position in power. And and not that I'm trying to point fingers, because I'm not. That's just kind of a byproduct of the system in itself. Even these people are in a place, and some of them, look, you know, not everybody who's affluent at a high level is some, you know, terrible person or something, you know. Has nothing to do with it. You know, it's the system itself on some respects. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, some people carry it out and individually make deliberate acts to try and oppress another person, but you know, some of this is just structural anyway. Yeah, they're playing and, the hand that they're dealt. It's just a game. Right, right, exactly. And they're just trying to live their life and so on and so forth. You know, I mean, look, I mean, Bill Gates is a bad guy. You know, this guy came from you know, pretty normal dude for the most part. Yeah, sure, he's a huge billionaire, but for the most part, he's a pretty normal dude. You know, I mean, it's the same thing with, like, you know, there's a lot of people who have been very successful in this country. And, yeah, maybe they really love the fact that they could be successful and be this wealthy and so on and so forth in this country because it's the American dream. 
But at the end of the day, there are some things that um, are going to question how do we get our values truly inactive, practically, without making laws, without creating power struggles? Well, you know, there's, there's a real simple method. It's called the scientific method. <laughs> you know? Now, if it's guided by a good ethical system, you know, with people in mind and human rights and so on and so forth, then you're going to work out okay with that. You know? But if it's misguided, you know, it's going to be destructive. Science is just a tool for understanding how things work. And we're lucky to be able to be able to do all of these things. I mean, the fact that we can do a podcast, it's all based on people discovering new ways of communication. And it's the same thing. And it eliminates a lot of problems, too. So, you know, it's a good thing. Uh, the power problem is a perfect thing to, to solve. If you solve the power issue, it would create an incredible boon to the human species. Mm-hmm. Significantly. As a matter of fact, it would even elevate people who um, are in extremely powerful positions. However, there's also a conspiracy to say that they actually already have these things. They just don't share it with anybody else. So they're already benefiting anyway. I would believe that. They probably that. have it. What's that? I, I would definitely believe that. And oh, Well, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Go ahead. Well, I mean, this is this is kind of moving on but and kind of going back at the exact same time. But this, you know, there was that old world ideology that, oh, yeah, human beings had to kind of conquer nature in order to develop. Then there's obviously those who are around even before then who figured out a way to be in harmony. But what about reaching the next level? This is kind of the new eon. Now, uh, just real quick breakdown. Basically, the previous eons, what was it? It was nomadic for tens of thousands of years, agricultural for just thousands of years, industrial for, what, 100 years or two, and now this technological. It's so exponential, so bottleneck that this next eonic shift, you know, the new paradigm, it's going to be so abrupt we won't even notice it until it's already behind us. And it it feels like this is it. It feels like we're at this cultural crossroads. And what do you think is going to happen once human beings finally actualize their outer will. And there's this idea about inner inner and outer will, right? And how do we align those? And, you know, we get so worked up and just, oh, I need to get this alarm clock. They broke it down in Fight Club really well. You buy a car to get to work, to pay for the car, to get to work. And it's just like, what if we get rid of all that shit? What are we going to find when we reclaim our, our, our real will? It depends on how you got it. And you talk about Judaism, and one it's kind of interesting you mention that. There are ethics, and there are there is such thing, in my opinion, as divine wisdom, and that's also in the Kabbalah. Uh, and that's pretty old. And it's also in the Eastern philosophy as well. And it depends on how people choose. If they want to choose to live in fear and hate, which I think is real. Uh, and fear and hate, to me, is nothing more than... Um, not knowing something, whereas compassion is about understanding. And, and that's something that, you know, a lot of these different esoteric things talk about significantly. The, the art of compassion, Dalai Lama talks about it, okay? The, um, you know, there's, uh, the Bhagavad Gita talks about this. You know, I mean, Christianity talks about this. Uh, even Muslims talk about this, and Correct. so does the Jew. And, 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 so does, and so does the Torah and the Zohar. All these different things, you have to understand that People have to consolidate and recognize what it is that they actually value and agree. They have to agree, okay, yeah, I agree with it. It doesn't mean you have to have, you know, we don't have to live in a world where science compromises faith or spirituality. It doesn't. It never has. I don't believe that at all. As a matter of fact, there's plenty of people who are scientists who have a different faith. But, um, 
you know, it depends on the people. Again, technology doesn't always solve everything. It's the same thing. It depends on the motivation of it. And that has to do with people. It has to do with individuals. It has to do with what they value. They have to value each other. And, and if you're talking about compassion and humanity, that starts with empathy. That starts with, uh, you know, understanding. I'm not saying it's like a crossroads. It's always a trial and error system. You know, each generation learns something new. But um, if people consistently, and I believe this because I watch it, you look at the way people wanted to change the election. Now, to be fair, um, and I'm not a fan of xenophobia at all. I can't stand it. I think it's awful. But I also think it's a byproduct of people creating division as well. And I think when you have a nation that is run by a lot of power sources, division is into their advantage. Divide and conquer is a system. Uh -huh. so it, it is a tactic. And there has been a divide and conquer tactic in many nations, including this one. It, it disrupts solidarity. However, to be fair, there was solidarity in this last election, which tells you people want things to be better. They don't want to be exploited. They don't want banks in charge. They don't want corporations running their life. So now, granted, you know, let's look at Trump, okay? The KKK supported this guy. That's kind of creepy. But the point I'm making is Bernie was very popular. Trump was popular. Now, Bernie, to me, was, was truly the voice of compassion in this particular battle, if you want to call it that, for, populate, you know, for, for a populist voice. Mm -hmm. Because he actually reached out to everybody, even, even people on the Trump side. And unfortunately, people took fear and hate. It's easier to sell. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean people don't have good aspirations and good values that they actually would like to see. There's a really good quote, and I can't remember what it was from. Ah, it was from Ermin Goring, okay? And it was uh, what he said at the Nuremberg trials. And he said, the common people usually don't want war and they don't want suffering. But it's usually the people who have the power, and it doesn't matter what form of democracy or a dictatorship, they usually end up exploiting them. Does Unfortunately, it, there's always a boogeyman. You're absolutely right. But what I'm curious about is when the boogeyman is the federal government, because we're basically putting these people in charge of these agencies and sometimes even the White House itself who are hostile to the very nature and purpose of these institutions. So how can we reconcile? Because I think that is the most disturbing. People don't realize that, you know, the way they talk about government, like it's this far away nefarious thing, and they refuse to participate. It's, it, the democracy is as good as, 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 as it's going to be as good and as well informed as it is as its people. It's going to be as efficient as that. Now, it's going to be slow. Democracy is always slow. But then in Switzerland, they have a fast one. They have a direct democracy. And it is apparently far more efficient than anything here. But it's not fair to compare them because Switzerland is a very small country. Exactly. Like a state. I, I don't know if I would want everyone voting on everything directly. You know? Well, it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, uh, you know, it depends on how you appropriate it. My issue with representative democracy, not that I have a problem necessarily with any once, you know, one thing I have a question, I question the republic. The reason why is because now I understand the dangers of a democracy, too. 51% can rule in favor, and that, that favor could be, let's bring slavery back again. Okay, But then again, if you have a Bill of Rights, like we have, and the same thing with every other country, have a tenet of rights that can never be violated, then that, that's what puts checks and balances in so long as that the other parts are in their place. However, um, one of the key issues with the re representative is that you're, submit, you're submitting all your thinking to one other person. You're giving away your mind. You're basically saying, I'm not participating. I just voted for this guy. He's going to think for me. And guess what happens? He becomes a broker for special interest. It already encourages an entire discretionary fee 
and a commission financially for somebody to exploit. So immediately, you submit, you, you submit your thoughts and your critical thinking, critical faculties to a rep, a guy who you are supposed to trust is going to do something for you and the people. That takes away your critical thinking and takes you away from the system as opposed to participation. And then immediately you become apathetic. And what's the biggest problem in this country? Apathy, voter apathy, right? Yep. Well, they have never been engaged. They figured, well, the celebrity is going to take care of it. It's all good. I'm good. <laughs> and I think this goes back as far as back to idolatry as possible. Everybody thinks, well, Jesus is going to save me, you know, and so on and so forth. And that's not taking accountability for your individual participation. And that system promotes it. Uh, and, and how does that, how do you change that? Well, you know, it depends. I mean, maybe you can still keep representatives, but at the end of the day, this system we have almost assures people not to vote because they don't want to participate anymore. You know, some people say, well, just, you know, limit the government. Um, well, that's one way of doing certain things. And yeah, sure, government should be efficient, lean, and simple as much as possible, always. You know, and that's, that's logical. And of course, you don't want it to get too bloated. Uh, but you also want it to be efficient and to work for you. And here's the other thing is, people keep on thinking the government is outside of themselves. But the whole point of it is, you are the government. Isn't exactly. that right? We are the people. Commonwealth. So even the Pentagon is you. You are the Pentagon. Well, just <laughs> so, the word, that's why the Commonwealth of Virginia, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, we all right. share in the wealth collectively. And right. here's an alternative. Instead of direct uh, you know, democracy, what if we just tried to localize more? And because it f seems like everyone's well, just like Well, that's where you have most DC. power. I think yeah. where, I, I, I agree with you. I, I think that seems to be really where it's at. I like to vote on bills, or I, I also like to know about what's going on in the community. Um, you do have, people actually have a lot more influence there. And that's where simplicity comes in, uh, in regards to, you know, yeah, you have a federal government, you have all these states and all these different things. And if you're talking about a political structure, legal structure, which is clearly over, overwritten, um, the local level is definitely a great place to get kids that are in their 17, 18, when they're going to go into the voting period, to get engaged. That changes everything. Right, and it tends to be nonpartisan. That's right, because they're looking to solve issues. They're not looking to promote some you know, fucking belief system. And that's one of the things that you run into in this country is people are so guarded, they're so dogmatic about what's right, what's wrong, as opposed to saying, well, what's the problem? You know, how do we solve the problem? Oh, okay, we're spending too much money here. Okay, well, why don't we figure out a more efficient way of doing this? What's the problem here? But then they'll say, well, it's an ideological problem. You know, you'll have, uh, you know, a right-wing uh, person who, a neocon, or you have a neolib or whatever. All these different people will start spouting their dogmatic thoughts as opposed to actually engaging in a reasonable discussion on practical uh, application, you see. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And um, and, they, and they're not and they're not taking advantage. And the other thing is, people take democracy for granted completely. They have no idea what they're capable of here. Yeah. <laughs> they really have a lot of power if they used it. People power. They just don't. They a don't use it. Absolutely. Well, one of my favorite Jefferson quotes: "Information is the currency of democracy." And that was. Oh, yeah, yeah. They were very anti-corporate. And very anti-aristocratic in a way. And people understand this is consolidated power. It really is. And it shouldn't be there. And honestly, corporations weren't actually invented for businesses. They were invented for public works projects. That's the history behind them. They're actually not uh, supposed to be used in the manner we use them today. Wow. Uh, it's to yeah. serve the commons. Like, it was, yeah. Like, so if you did a, if you did a bridge, you had to create a particular structure that could be accountable to the government that was funding it. 
and they had to employ people. So the corporate articles were actually created for that purpose only. And then they would phase it out. But then that became a right to also businesses. And the problem with this system is it writes off moral hazard. Now everybody knows this. <laughs> the moral hazard is basically, you know, it means uh, you know, a company can get sued, but it can also go bankrupt and nobody has to pay the consequences. So right. let's say you go and do an oil spill and you destroy half the ecology over there, including uh, infecting people's water and making people sick. Uh, the company, there's no restitution, really. It could be financial, but nobody goes to prison for it. No. Well, the formula yeah. is privatized profits, socialized liabilities. Right. But if the government does it today, actually, believe it or not, and the government does, um, there is a lot of uh, hoopla on it. More so, I think, than there are in corporations. Well, and, um, you know, I, I find it interesting how that works. I mean, I could be incorrect on that. I don't know the stats in, between the two. England, you know, definitely the uh, – and I was going to talk about this. We'll, we'll eventually get to it. But my very first job was at this commodity brokerage firm and working with futures traders. It was amazing just the evolution. Just in the time I knew this one guy, the evolution of his job title. You know, when he first got into that trade, originally he was in stocks. But then he's like, oh, no, I'm a commodity broker. And then, you know, it's like, oh, how's that commodity bro brokering thing going? It's just like, oh, no, dude, I'm a futures trader. And, and then eventually he's like, oh, no, dude, I don't do any of that stuff. I'm just a speculator. And you see right, accountability right. being removed with each of those degrees. Now, he di I, I definitely learned a lot, you know, working for him. He turned me on to that documentary, The Money Masters. Um, but I do know that England had I, a commodities market and had that corporate business structure. And that's why a lot of the states were English businesses like Jamestown, named after King James, Maryland. And it was it was this trifecta of church, state and corporation all becoming one thing. That's why even to this day, if you're born in England to Muslim well, that, parents, that, you're COE. That's actually right. That's fascism. And, and well, most people don't realize that corporation comes from the word corpe, which is Latin for the body or group. And it is a form of collective. Corporation is actually a form of fascism. It has to do with an organic body. So you have a head, a dictator, like a CEO, which that is what a dictator is. Uh -huh. And then you have administration, and then you have um, pawns, basically. You know, they're called rank and file. And those people are only as useful to the collective of the body Otherwise, they're disposed of. And if they are more useful, like a caste system, they're promoted to different positions organically based on their production. And that's what fascism is, really. They actually had capitalism and fascism, but it was chosen by what served the collective the best. And they would give people rewards, and they'd allow them to have their own businesses and so on and so forth based on their contribution to the organic whole, their corpe, basically. And that is fascism. And to me... What you're seeing in the business world is, a, is not just capitalism, it is a combination of capitalism and fascism. And a very modern American style, of, and it's been around for a while. And, and, and at the end of the day, uh, there's also the prison system, which is a gulag at this point. It's truly a gulag. Hey, Obama cut federal, he cut the federal contracts, as you know, with all the private prisons. That's good. They should really readjust the 13th Amendment to state that no labor can be extracted from a prisoner, because mm -hmm. that actually not only creates slave labor, but it also takes away economic benefit from people who otherwise should be getting those jobs who had no crime. Please. Have you ever seen a salesman on a sales floor? They lie all the time. Oh, God. Seriously. Yeah, it's totally cut, it's a company where they ask me to lie about a product to sell it. So the point I'm making is, is that 
because you have a state, and the state exists for property right protection, and this includes money. Once money is created, it's considered legal tender. So therefore, it is a legal system that is protecting it, which is through force. But the problem is you also have everybody who works to protect those rights also interested in making money because the whole system is about making money and a wealth acquisition. So therefore, eventually, sooner or later, that state's going to grow because corporations are going to grow and the rules are going to change and people are going to just make the rules up as they go along and make it benefit to whoever has the most to get the market controlled. And that's where we are today. And you've seen a massive consolidation of banks, corporations, and products. So this is it. You're looking at it, well, in my opinion. Uh, and that's that's where we come in. You know, it's time to right, start right. bringing more people into the fold and, and returning us to some of our more progressive roots. I still think, you know, uh, of course, there's no easy fix. Like you said, it's trial and error. But, um, OK, well, you look at England again. You know, I mean, if they are fascists, they're pretty damn liberal for fascists. <laughs> um, but I love their what they did, you know, not only with their national health care to kind of um, you know bring people together after World War Two, but the BBC. All the BBC channels are commercial free and pretty much censorship free as well. And, you know, because. Oh, so here's the interesting thing. They funded the BBC channels out of their military budget. Because why not? Right. Well, I mean, I guess they got to get the money from somewhere. But I I like this idea that it's almost a case of national security. It's our national health. If you don't have an informed populace, well, that was populace, kind of the whole point. Yeah, no that fu- was that was the point of Ed Murrow and and KPCC and NPR and all these different things. I mean, as a matter of fact, I think it was Fred Rogers who actually started the founding of NPR, really the act in 1968. But I think it was uh, LBJ signed mm-hmm. to create a funding of culture that's preserved not for personal gain, but literally for social benefit. Basically, so that people can, at a young age, when they're born, they have access to something that's always giving them knowledgeable information that isn't compromised by personal gain, and that was a way to structure that in. And 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 it's not ironic that Fred Rogers was part of this. You know, Mr. Rogers. Yeah, he's a saint. Uh, You know, yeah, and he was quite a um, champion of getting people informed, and you know, and, and exposed to different variations of our world and our culture. And different cultures, and, and art, and creativity. And that was PBS. It's a great thing. PBS has been wonderful. Um, you know, and, and in some respects, it makes sense. I mean, and, you know, some people will say, now keep in mind, you're also going to have the argument, oh, well, it's just going to make the government bigger. You know, all the Austrian economists are going to freak out over it. The Italians <laughs> will freak out over it. They have to see where the social benefit is, because ideologically, they believe that there shouldn't be any collective at all. <laughs> so They're not very yeah. long-term, it seems. There's no long term. It's all individual gratification. And the problem with that is it denies the scientific fact is that we're actually a species. We are. And you're going to actually elevate through industrializing everything by collaboration. Now, granted, their ideological argument is choice. Well, I want to have choice. I say, well, children don't have a choice to be born in the world. And they also don't get choices until they're 18. Their parents dictate that along with the rules of society. So in some respects, there are certain limitations on that. There, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You also have to have infrastructural components for a society to actually thrive. And that's not going to come just from being completely anarchistic. I mean, if people were that enlightened, uh, we wouldn't even have war. So, you know, th- those are all elements. It's interesting you mentioned that. The BBC is like that. Uh, NPR is like that. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of KPCC. You know, I think they're really good. I also like uh, KCRW. You know, and then there's internet stuff that I like, you know. But... 
you know, it goes back with the argument with healthcare, you know, and and I personally believe that a basic healthcare system should be very similar to the fire department. I don't think any child, I don't give a crap what their position is, where their economic uh, situation is, should never be denied and never have to pay out of their own pocket with labor or anything. Uh, healthcare. Yeah, I, just today. I, just I don't heard. agree with this. I, I think it's barbaric. I'm sorry. I think it's inhumane. I think it's barbarism. Well, I think I you're think absolutely that we're right. Sitting in the fucking jungle and we're supposed to shoot each other over the fucking scraps to me is inhumane. It's, I don't um, think that's enlightened at all. There's talk of um, like a meta kids program, you know, um, it's similar to how Medicare was expanded under uh the affordable care act now there's talk there's going to be like uh, a meta kids thing so i would love to see that happen i think people are coming around you know slowly but surely i think you're yeah, right it's just the, the thing is just that it's so overcomplicated then you spend 54 percent of the freaking uh, budget on military and blowing up the middle east and putting bases all over the country if you took a portion of that i mean if you took that 1.6 trillion dollar contract with the F-35s and put that towards one healthcare system, just basic, and everything else could be private on top of it for special services and crap. At least kids kids and people who don't have a lot of money can go in and just get taken care of for the flu, or they get sick, or they get a cut, or they get a gash, or an accident happens, a car wreck. They don't get charged a $15,000 ER bill, ever. It's paid for out of the tax system. And, and that's it. it. It's just there. Always. You don't even think about it. Hi, do you have an ID and a social security card? Yeah, okay. Well, they have you in the system. We heard you, that uh, you had an appendix rupture today. Hmm. And how old are you? Well, I'm 18. Can you, you know, well, okay, well, we'll go get that taken care of right now. There's no bill. <laughs> it doesn't go to mail. It's as simple as that. I like it. Oh, so the money's sense. out there. We can not only do that, we could explore space. Oh, there's plenty of reasons. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that in itself would psychologically change the dynamic of how we view each other. I, I am a strong proponent of individualism, but I'm also a strong proponent of having a healthy society. And, and if you don't accept that society is a reality, then you're ignoring the scientific reality. Life expectancies don't just go up because we have free enterprise. Absolutely. And going back to this uh, notion of individuality, yeah, I mean, how much room do you have to explore your individuality if you, well, what did FDR say? A necessitous man cannot be free. Right. If you're it's working true. three different so, jobs, you're not really an individual. Because, you're a slave. If you're working yeah. three jobs, you're a slave. Yeah. You are. There's no question about it. Your whole life is sitting in a place you don't really want to be, and you're withering away. People don't understand why people advocate for a living wage. Uh, there's a very logical reason. They, they don't want to just it's, – it's, it's not only survival. It's also mental health and physical health. All these things affect society in every which way, and they have an opportunity cost. You know, but I still think there's a systemic problem with the whole thing anyway. So, well, <laughs> that's another, you another have, argument altogether. Yeah, uh, as far as economic turmoil, you know, especially these years since the housing crash, I heard it so well put. I don't remember who said this, but it was basically like labor pains, all this turmoil, and that we're kind of about to give birth to a new kind of economy. So, what do you see? Like more worker-owned co-ops. Profit sharing collectives. I mean, or are companies just going to get cooler, like Microsoft? And... I, I don't. I don't know. I, I mean, that's a good question. I think I've been reading a lot of different. Um, you know, I've been reading a lot of different uh, ideas that people have been implementing into their companies, and I also have been reading about unions. 
Uh, and one of those ideas was uh, the idea that a person can choose when they work their hours. Now, keep in mind, these are for privileged salary employees. We're not talking about rank-and-file employees. Right. Okay, I personally believe the entry-level job should be living wage, and I don't mean surviving. I mean comfortable, something comfortable. Not, you, know, you know, if you're going to do corporate politics, that's just my opinion. It benefits everybody, actually, in the so, long run. Fight for but, 15. But, but, but I think people are exploring new ideas on how to do things. And that includes whether they're doing it on their own and doing it at their home, whether they're doing it with their own personal business and they're keeping it small and simple, or they're choosing what they're consuming on how to do it. And obviously, everybody knows if you want to have real power in this country, it's how you consume that ultimately determines the direction of a corporate power. Yeah, that's a form of voting, too, who you support. It sure is. You vote with your buck. That's the most dangerous. <laughs> Boycotts are by far extraordinarily destructive towards the company. Um, um, they're very effective. Um, but the point I'm making is uh, a reputation. But you, you're you seeing people gravitate towards new ways of doing commerce, uh, new ways of exchange. So, yeah, there could be there could be more co-ops. I mean, Winco is a co-op. It's completely owned by its employees. You know? Yeah. The- um, there's other... Go ahead, the best place, in fact, the joke in uh, Columbia, Missouri, there's this really, really cool store. Unfortunately, there were like four Walmarts as well in that town. But once I found out about Hy-Vee, I was like, Hy-Vee, what is that? And someone told me it's where Jesus would shop. And I was like, all right, I guess, I'll get, I guess, I guess, you know, that's uh, pointing me in the right direction. So uh, be like Jesus, you know. And I show up, and yeah, it really was incredible. I mean, it was so beyond uh, anything else I've ever seen. And when I found out later, I'm like, "What? what's up with that place? It's so good. And they're like, it is all employee-owned. Every single person you run into, all the rank and file, they all have a stake in the company. They're a part of it. And, well, that's, yeah. there's a there's a really interesting comment about Michael Hain. That's his name. He wrote a book called Paracon, called Participatory Economics. I read it a long time ago. It had to do with the idea of actually changing the paradigm of how we view economics in the workplace or the company. And everybody had a piece, and it was an opportunity. So if you've got an air conditioner and a person didn't, that actually is a form of payment. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so in some respects, there was an understanding. I think the whole idea was to create a new paradigm of how we view the benefits that we get when we do a certain thing for labor. And it was also the idea of making that sure that no one person had to control or ownership over you no matter what, and yet there was still a freedom to participate, and it wasn't a controlled environment either. And it's very radical ideas. Wow. Now, of course, yeah, it's very interesting. That's the whole thing. It's not a forced situation. Everything's voluntary. It's voluntarism, actually, is what it is. So if you have co-ops, it's done by voluntarism. And it's the same thing with, like, you're seeing little businesses pop up all over the place because a lot of people in our generation and the next generation are like, I don't really... I don't want to be under the thumb of somebody. I want to have my own thing, you know. I don't want to work for a big corporation and be in a cubicle. And, of course, commercialism is completely designed to try and insatiate your your more animal instincts to impulsively mine. I think people are starting to realize, well, I don't want to be weighted down by all this useless shit that I don't need that I'm in debt with. And they're starting to figure that out. Yep. You know what I mean? And they're liberating themselves in some respects having more is actually worse. Mm. Having less is easier to deal with. It's baggage. I mean, look at Warren. Look at Warren Buffett, dude. He's living in the same house for 38 years. 
same house. Minimalism. Simple. Yeah. And that's I heard people... Mark Zuckerberg drives a freaking V-dub. <laughs> it doesn't no surprise joke. me. He has a very modest home. I, I've always noticed the most successful people I've met don't care about superficial things like that. They're focused on the things that really matter. You know, there's yeah, that ideas and, yeah. and being productive. And I remember and seeing, see that. I, I saw Jello Biafra on uh, Politically Incorrect back in the 90s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, when it was still on ABC. And um, he brought up a maximum wage, which I had no idea until years later that, that those were the original wage laws in this nation. You know, it was a maximum right. wage, it was like this corporate um, tax, basically. Yeah. tariff and uh Jell Biafra was like yeah nobody needs a billion dollars and what you're saying is proof i mean these people are only going to buy so many pairs of pants you give a guy a billion dollars a year as his salary for you know what ceo of united healthcare or some bullshit like right. that that should be free anyway and we, yeah but then you'll then you'll have an argument from one other person and there is going to be this argument which I can understand, but I agree with you. There's no reason why. And my issue with somebody having that much wealth acquisition is a combination of two things. The usurping of power in a system that we have, which means you can practically buy your laws, which actually undermines property rights and, and, labor, and, and all kinds of rights. Mm -hmm. And second, it is excessive, but some people will say, well, it's my choice in this system. Well, actually, you're right. You're legally allowed to go out and actually earn three to five, fifty, whatever billion dollars you want. But is that, a, is that something you put a law on, or is it something in a system that perpetuates it? If you have a system that perpetuates that acquisition, then, you know, whether you put a law on it or not, it's going to be the argument that people will say based on choice. You know, well, what's it'd the be point like of having 50 fucking cars? It, exactly. Yeah. And going back to natural systems, it would be like a tree, you know, absorbing all of this water through its roots and then not producing any leaves. It just keeps right. all the moisture inside. I mean, it's not a functional system. In its own in my opinion. Yeah, well, the way I look at it is, um, you know, we had a lot of very, very democratic, I mean, I don't even know what to call them. They're almost like small government socialist programs, you know, like the Homestead Act. Just like little things to kind of help you out here and there on your way. You know, land grants, free colleges. You know, it's funny. Thomas Jefferson doesn't even say he was president on his headstone. It just says he started the University of uh, Virginia and that he authored the Declaration of Independence. Like that was more important, starting a school to him, Abe Lincoln with the land grants. And FDR was basically just like taking all those little things and putting it on steroids. Just new deal, new infrastructure, you know, new programs, social programs. I mean, obviously he won in landslide elections, but um, it seems like Ronald Reagan was the exact opposite. And that was the, if you look at the Eisenhower Republican platform of 1952 and you look at what was going on in 1980, not only the kind of stuff Reagan was saying, like, you know, the worst things you can ever hear in the English language are I'm with the government. I'm here to help. Like, I, I can definitely think of a few worse things to hear than that. But the Koch brothers, did you know David Koch ran for president as a libertarian in 1980? I didn't know that. Yeah. And if you look at his platform. Actually, I didn't know that. Yeah. I believe it was David Koch. It was definitely one of the brothers. Um, and he was the libertarian candidate, 1980. And if you look at their platform, it is the exact opposite of the Eisenhower platform of 52. You know, well, they, again, you know, the Koch, they're, they're only interested in expanding their empire. And so the last thing they want to have involved with that is any kind of legal system whatsoever. And they want to make sure the legal system goes in their direction. Right. They so, only care. That's all. They don't. 
am I convinced that there is any true ideology in position of power and control? Yeah. And that's it. And it doesn't matter. So if the Democratic Party came out and authorized all these great benefits for the Koch brothers, believe me, they'd be supporting the Democratic Party. So it doesn't matter. The well, if the and, Libertarian Party did the same thing, they'd support them. It was the Green Party, and they said, hey, we're going to let you do all the oil and drilling, and you can control this whole region. Of course they'd take it. Well, <laughs> right. They'd support them, too. Well, here's something else that happened in 1980. Punk rock was getting really big, especially out here. You know, England, it, it was already pretty much dead... And I remember getting into, you know, all these weird symbols, like those four crooked bars and the dead Kennedy sure. symbol. It was like these secret societies. And I'm like, what yeah, is yeah. that? And and the anarchy symbol, of course, was probably the most powerful one. And I felt, you know, I was a registered libertarian for six years and eventually re-registered so I could vote for John Edwards because I liked his message about poverty. And... um it was just so bizarre when the more I learned about libertarianism and it kind of almost being a front for a lot of these billionaires, just deregulate everything. Well, that's the problem. I just think the moment you surrender your critical faculties to any one ideology is the moment you've surrendered your critical faculties. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it doesn't matter whether you, you want to have an idol like Ayn Rand or you want to have an idol like Gandhi, you know, you are in charge of you. Those are all interesting ideas, okay? You know, whether it's, you know, communism or, or extreme libertarianism, they're ideas. They're interesting. But do but they you don't have to run your life. Anarchy, because obviously I had been had. I bought into it for years. I joined basically the anarchist party or the closest thing we have to it. And I can't help but wonder was punk rock in part being promoted? You know, we've heard a lot about gangster rap, uh, the other alleged, you know, people's music. There well, it's the idea. Some, yeah. Anarchy is, you know, philosophical anarchy. You'll read William Godwin's uh, anarchist writings. He's primarily the person who started this whole thing anyway. And he was really rebelling against any system that would tell him what to do and, and use it within reason and to try and elevate people to a higher level of consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. But he also never excluded. Um, and he also wanted people to have a better living and not to be exploited and be oppressed. So, you know, he was against oppression. You know, And then you have the Milton Friedman people or the antithesis of the William Godwin branch of libertarianism. They're the most, most extreme, and everything's monetary. Everybody should be, everything has got a price. It's got a number on it, you know. Scarcity and, and that, to me, is, it, well, it's, it's supporting the monetary system, which I think is inherently and scientifically flawed, hmm. personally. That's, I'm convinced of I think the ideal behind anarcho-syndicalism or anarcho-capitalism or anarcho-anything is the idea that we're never owned by anyone, any organization, any, any, anything, that we're free and whole on our own terms. However, there are always rights. There are always boundaries. People have their own boundaries. So, you know, those things are always established, which requires some level of organization to establish them. So it's kind of a give-and-take situation. And until, you know, I mean, unless people are telepathic <laughs> uh, and they can sense where it's coming out of the that level of anarchy is, is uh, we're not even close to that. I don't even, I mean, I don't know if I could be correct, but, um, you know, that is a concept to me philosophically about being free and whole, not being oppressed. And I think that's a very important concept that people probably should listen to. Don't let your organization oppress you. Let it work for you. Don't let any company oppress you. Let it work, you know, you work with it, work for you. Don't let anybody own you. I mean, of course. I mean, it's, who wants to be enslaved in any which way, shape, or form? There isn't really civics. There isn't really um, an understanding of 
a lot of those aspects, sociology is ignored significantly. The, the research in sociology is absolutely amazing. There's been so much discovered in sociology and in psychology and in, and uh, and um, you know our bio, bio biological interactions are, are real. You know, and and these things teach us how we are in a lot of ways and how we function as as a, as an organism. Let alone you know having consciousness and being sapient. But, uh, you know, the anarchy thing is interesting because I think it's really about saying, I can be myself <laughs> and I don't want to be owned. Yeah. And that's a positive. The sentiment, know? yeah, definitely is, is visionary and, and there's a beauty to, to its principle. It's sort of the sovereignty within. Yeah, I definitely want to have you on again and we'll get to some more of these questions. But um, what uh, projects have you been working on recently? It's crazy. We were talking about politics. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it all connects. Uh, the main corporation that deals with the stories that, that these have been built up over the years, these, all these screenplays have been written over the years, that deals with a primary company called the CNR Corporation. And for our listeners, it's C as in the letter C, not C like vision the letter C, or the yeah. ocean, right? Which is an interesting right. symbol in and of itself. It's like the crescent moon. Correct. So sea and yes. earth, it's really intriguing. Uh, can you tell yeah. us more? It is very symbolic. They even have an organization called the Collective Eight. Mm. And eight is numerological for power. Sounds kind of like the nine unknown men. Right. But this is more about the center of power and the consolidation of power between eight people mm. to keep it from being corrupting. Hence why they actually created the name. I just gave away a spoiler. Well, <laughs> it's, that's okay. Uh, and the eight, too, is infinity. So it's kind of like Correct. they're just trying to keep on playing the game. Correct. And that's exactly the whole idea. And and they actually usurp other corporations who think they're on top. So you have another corporate, you know, another secret society called Tria Conjuncta Uno, which is another faction of power players and all these different things in Dresden Sun. You know, so there's all these different corporate rivals. Everybody's trying to V for the top dog spot and planet you know, corporate control and shit. Mm. So all those things are, are, are definitely flirted around with the story. And, they, and they're built around different, um, each one is a different journey, uh, discovering a new idea, each story. So the interpreter is about a completely different idea. And the other one's about a different idea. And each one centers around usually one key character with the intersecting stories that all, you know, coalesce at the end. Ah. Yeah. You know, usually two stories happening together or one story in conjunction with something that's putting it together that the person doesn't know about. And and that is definitely a plot device. So, you know, each each one's unique. And there's the Saren transfer, which I have not finished. Uh, and that, that is a continuation. And obviously there's a face-off with the sea and earth eventually. You know, and who they are, what they want, and so on and so forth. So all these different things are elements into it, but they're really more about catharsis. Uh, yeah, we do have we do have the archetype pictures Facebook, but we could create a interpreter's Facebook site, which we have not done yet. Um, I could, um, if they go to archetype pictures for now on the Facebook site, uh, there's a lot of stuff there that they can see with pictures of being on set and various things that have happened, you know, in the company's history. And then um, I can give an update on where they can actually watch or see. Excellent. Yeah, and I'll post it. I'll either post it on the Archetype Pictures site or the Archetype Pictures Facebook um, feed, the news feed there, or I will guide the people who are interested in it to an interpreter's feed on Facebook. It's either going to be one or the other. So, and we'll put like a, a teaser scene, a full scene. And they watch it and they'll be here with that to say about it. 
<laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> well, Michael, I, I got to finish the damn thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, hey, one thing at a time. Um, did you have any yes, final thoughts to leave our listeners with or shout outs before we close this segment? Uh, well, no, I, I appreciate you having me on here. It's such a wonderful and, and engaging conversation. I'd be happy to speak with you again if you'd like. Uh, but uh, yeah, any thoughts? That are, well, I shared quite a few. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, <okay. laughs> well, hey, I mean, I, this is know, only the beginning. All right. Well, I, I, you know, I wish everyone well, and, and thanks for listening to me and anything I had to say. Hopefully, I didn't. Uh, hopefully, I was accurate as best as I could be on the fly. And, well, um, it's you know, it's always uh, if there's anything, check your sources. <laughs> no, oh, always, always check your sources. I, I, I love being in the moment, and honestly, like hearing ideas like yours and hearing about projects and fresh ideas like the kind you're pouring forth, it's like food for me. Like, it gives me life. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. I feel so, you know, energized after having conversations like this. And, um, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah, I think we definitely all learned a lot. So we'd love to have you yeah, back on great, the Populist yeah. Papers in the near future. I appreciate that, man. And if there's anything I, I would say that, uh, you know, there's all kinds of unique ideas out there, if, you know, especially in the climate today, is, is that, um, you know, I mean, there's so many unique perspectives out there. And um, there are wonderful people doing good things in regards to what they know and what they're showing. And there's new inventions and new things out there. It's it's really good to get informed with everything, especially the system that we have. That's definitely for sure. And I think that's a, that's a positive. So you know, hopefully uh, you know, we'll see what happens in the next one year. <laughs> <laughs> it's... You can't really tell anything in regards to a new administration until that's six to nine, maybe almost a year in. You know, sometimes you start seeing executive orders flying around. It'd be nice if they closed up that Guantanamo base, don't you think? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of things that would be nice. Um, yeah. There's always going to be they're not going to do that. There's always going to be underground facilities we don't know about, though. So. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, but um, hey, may you live in interesting times. So they say. Yes, sir. Um, all right. Anyway, well, thank Michael you so Ryan, much. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, a film director and founder of Archetype Pictures. Thank you so much for being with us, Michael. Thanks, man. Take care, Colin. Have a good one.